Tonight's talk is about different, some different aspects of Mara. Coming on retreat is a very intense adventure. It's a time of going deep inside and exploring ourselves. It's a process of bringing forth our inner potential bringing forth the light of awareness so that we awaken to the truth of things, to find a a deep inner security, an inner home, this crystal center inside. There's a book that I read recently called A Life of One's Own. It was written in 1934 by Joanna Field. She felt very dissatisfied with her life and decided to do an experiment. She kept a diary for seven years studying what were the conditions in her life that brought about happiness. The book was very, very honest. You know, she really wrote about her difficulties within that search. She discovered many things in the process. She discovered that to do anything with the expectation of happiness was usually fatal. It made the stream of delight in her life dry up immediately, this kind of expectation of happiness. Also, just to expect any results from what she did, she found brought her exasperation. She wrote, By keeping a diary of what made me happy, I discovered that happiness came when I was most widely aware. So I had finally come to the conclusion that my task was to become more and more aware, more and more understanding. With an understanding that was not at all the same thing as intellectual comprehension. And by finding that in order to be more and more aware, I had to be more and more still. I had not only come to see through my own eyes instead of at second hand, but I had also finally come to discover what was the way of escape from the imprisoning island of my own self-consciousness. She discovered what was important in terms of whether she was happy or not, was this quality of awareness and understanding that she brought to her life. And also that to be able to do that took a kind of stillness. What happens when we come on retreat and attempt to be still, which is part of this process, we usually discover that there are many powerful forces of darkness within the mind that prevent us from feeling 
or experiencing the truth of things from, from being in harmony with things as they are. And when we're overcome by these dark forces in the mind, they bring sorrow when we get identified with them, lost in them, when we don't see them clearly. These forces of darkness within the mind are known in Buddhism as the ten armies of Mara. The first army of Mara is sense-pleasure, The second is dissatisfaction. The third is hunger and thirst. The fourth is craving. The fifth is sloth and torpor. And the sixth is fear. I'll be mostly doing a medley on these tonight just to let you know that the seventh is doubt, which I've already talked about. And then the last... Armies of Mara 8, 9, and 10 are all concerned with conceit. Most important is to ask yourself, how do these armies of Mara prevent us from being at home with ourselves, from being at peace? Mara appears in early Buddhism as a deity, as the enemy of awakening. Mara literally means the killer or the destroyer of life. What happens is that when we're under the spell of darkness, it's a kind of death or sleep while still being alive. We're unawake. And this is why Mara is considered to be the destroyer of life. Mara is called the incarnation of ignorance. It's when our perception is unlit, when we're caught in believing our foggy perceptions, that this destroys our life. It covers the truth of things for us moment by moment. The process of being on retreat is becoming more and more still and quiet and these layers of darkness will emerge. They'll become more apparent. When we can learn how to work with these energies in the mind, they become workable rather than something that we need to repress or indulge in. And by continuing in this process of opening to these layers, we deepen and deepen until we do discover the stillness of heart that we all have the potential to, to feel and live by this deep harmony. This deep inner center is our true home. It's where the false appearances of desire and hatred cannot take hold. It's a place of deep inner security. Because of that, we're protected from this darkness. Because we've taken birth in the human realm, 
what happens is that moment by moment there's pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. You've heard enough about this already. When we feel pleasant feelings, you know, pleasant thoughts, pleasant sounds, pleasant uh, views, pleasant tastes, whatever it is, they can bring a certain kind of happiness. It's when we get attached to that pleasure that they become a problem. Pleasurable feelings themselves aren't a problem. It's the clinging to the sensual object that causes us the suffering. An example of this is usually on a retreat, there's somebody, some human being that we get attracted to. And what is actually happening is that there's a pleasant feeling that arises whenever we see the person or whenever we... We might even just see their shoes or we might see the color of a sweater. It doesn't take much. You know, we're so deprived of any kind of sensation here that, you know, just the sound of somebody walking by might bring this pleasant feeling. And what happens is that we proliferate from this you, know, you can just see it over and over again. This usually happens for everybody. That it becomes a fantasy, it becomes somebody that one wants not only to talk with at the end of the retreat, but we, we go and live with them, marry them, divorce them, die. It's an incredible. We have children. It's <clears throat> amazing. Some people spend three months doing this. <laughs> <laughs> And just here, you can imagine the suffering that that causes us here, but if you look outside in the world, the immensity of suffering that it's causing out there, I mean, it's awesome. And it's because we're not aware that it's just not the person. It's not the object. It's that feeling that we're becoming a slave to. We want more of it and more of it. And we get attached to the object The object isn't the problem. The sensual feeling isn't the problem. What we can actually learn to do is to experience that pleasant feeling when it arises. There's often a tendency to want to push that away. But if we can learn to just let that pleasant feeling come and go, we're not a slave to it anymore. And there's no clinging. The second army of Mara is called dissatisfaction. And I talked a lot about this in the aspect of dukkha, the vulnerability that we all experience as as human beings, this constant change, the lack of control that we really have, the unreliability of objects that keep coming and going. Underneath this constant change, what usually happens for us is that we find that most of our life experience isn't acceptable to us. And if you take a day in your life here, that if you add up all the boredom and the sleepiness and the knee pain and the (laughs) thinking, and and then you, you think about how little contentment or peace there is, then you'll get a sense of why this is an army of Mara 
that our moments of life just aren't good enough somehow. We want more. We want life to yield more. And we become very unhappy. This is why it's the second army of Mara. Since I talked a lot about this the other night, I won't talk about it much tonight. What happens is that dissatisfaction, when it takes over, will often lead to the third army of Mara, which is hunger and thirst. And this means that we hunger and thirst for familiar things, usually back home you know, or somewhere, that would bring some kind of comfort because the present moments feel so unsatisfying. I remember when Saida Upandita first came here and he was staying up in the room upstairs. I think one of the first things he said to me was that IMS was a heaven realm. And that compared to anywhere in the world, this retreat facility is probably the best that there is, or one of the best. And yet, still, there are so many things that we can find that aren't quite right. You know, there's the bulldozer and the big hole in the courtyard. Or there's a lot, there seems to be a lot of um, clanging of the heating pipes in the annex. Or maybe the food is too rich. Or maybe it's too simple. Maybe there's not enough indoor walking space. Maybe it's too crowded. Whatever it is, there's all, or maybe one would want one's own single room. And we find that we, we start imagining or desiring, hungering and thirsting for a cabin in the woods or a quieter environment or a more comfortable zafu or maybe a bigger library that could turn into another meditation hall. Whatever it is, that's what, that's what this army of Mara is. It's that wanting more comfort to kind of ease or buffer that dissatisfaction. When we don't see this process that happens clearly, this hungering and thirst will lead to craving. And since Carol talked quite a bit about craving, I won't talk too much about it. This is the fourth army of Mara. And basically, craving comes from not getting what we like. It's not getting what our preference would be to make life a little more satisfactory in the moment. And it can be quite simple. Sometimes craving can take the form of wanting a more concentrated sitting or wanting some sweet equanimity. It can get very subtle. We might want a more mindful sitting. It doesn't have to be craving for a cookie you know, or a relationship. It can take you know, many, many forms. And usually when we have a day <laughs> where there's a lot of disappointment and it's extremely uh, unsatisfactory, it will lead to these fantastic plans, you know, and, and uh, fantasies of what we could get. This is the craving. 
And we might spend five hours trying to figure out how to get the sitting we had two months ago or, you know, our first retreat. We do this. We might spend a lot of time figuring out what position to sit in to get a little less back pain or knee pain. You know, it's amazing what we do, the kind of craving. More and more I see that there's this enormous suffering that happens over not wanting any craving. <laughs> it's really funny. It's like we, we hear that you know, we, we need to let go and we've experienced at times what wonder, what wonder it is to let go. You know, it feels so good when we just really are in the present moment no matter what's happening. And actually I see in retreat that people suffer over wanting that experience of letting go probably more than anything. It's so ironic. It takes very subtle forms, this craving. And at this point in retreat, the mind has no pride. You know, it just gets, you know, you'll be thinking that it's a very uh, dharmic or dhamic uh, rationalization, you know, for what you'll be craving for. It can get very subtle. You know, you can think of some fantastic reason why you should spend three hours figuring out, you know, how to get a better position or how to get more equanimity because it seems like that's really what we're doing here. It's amazing, actually. And it takes enormous compassion for ourselves because there literally is so much dissatisfaction going on, generally, in our minds, even in such a luxurious retreat place. We usually want life to yield a a constancy of pleasure and support A teacher named Sri Nazargadatta said that to imagine that some little thing like food or sex or power or fame will make you happy is to deceive yourself. Only something as vast and deep as the truth can make us lastingly happy. So being hooked to our conditioned preferences to craving is a kind of slavery. It's not peace and it's not joy. And this is why craving is considered to be an army of Mara. Usually we're so fogged in or there's so much wanting or aversion, not wanting going on, that we miss the truth of things. And actually a moment where we do let go and see clearly and everything is complete in that moment, there's that feeling that everything is here right now for us. And that time, that moment or moments, it's actually good enough that kind of glimpse of peace is so powerful. Those moments are so incredibly simple. There's that simplicity because it's not based on the experience. 
that that also helps us keep going, those glimpses of peace. Through, it helps us keep going through the dissatisfaction. And it's often quite um, unexpected. It's a kind of grace when this happens. It might be that you're reaching for the banana and picking it up and about to bite. And all of a sudden there's that letting go. And when it's just there, and it's enough. And it's so wonderful. And this is a glimpse of harmony, of what it's actually like to feel full, no matter what's happening. It can happen when somebody sneezes, or when the wind touches our cheek. It doesn't matter what the experience is. It could be enormous burning in the back area. It's when there's that opening. It's so simple, yet it's so hard to do. And that's why I'm saying that that craving for this place of not wanting is the most difficult for us on retreat often. And it's learning to let go of that. When discontent and then hunger and thirst and craving have been happening, there's often the searching for what we want. And often we reach outside of ourselves for something to satisfy us. It might be for approval or for a cookie or whatever. Or we reach inside ourselves for more concentration, more equanimity or whatever. And that's that feeling of not resting in the center of our experience, moment by moment. And when there's this searching, when there's this reaching out, reaching in, it becomes quite exhausting. And this is when the fifth army of Mara comes rolling in. It's called sloth and torpor. It's that exhaustion from that search. And it's very tiring, this constant search. What happens is that the mind withers, it feels shrunken, and we're unable to sink into the moment, we're unable to sink the attention into what's happening. Often the body slumps, and if it continues or deepens the sleepiness, you know, there'll be nodding. The fiery energy is absent. Sometimes people experience this as a kind of, I think of it as cotton candy. It's like we're in this huge (laughs) mass of cotton candy. And it's the resistance to this cotton that actually can make it worse. So it's really important to remember that it's just sleepiness. And sleepiness doesn't leave any scars even though sometimes we fight it like it would. It's, it's just sleepiness. And since people have mentioned a lot about how to work with sleepiness, I just wanted to mention that what we need to do rather than fight it is to, to, the, to do the best you can to stay awake. And that can take many forms. It can take 
the form of being mindful of the sleepiness itself, of the posture, of how the eyes feel. It can take the form of adding more things for the mind to do. Adding more things for the mind to do brings energy if one does it in time. You keep the attention moving, you can add touch points. And often, if the cotton candy is very present and none of that works, I will suggest to people to find the edge of the cotton candy. There's often an edge, but sometimes it's really far out there. And it's possible to just kind of slink along walking and sitting with this big cotton around us. And it means that the attention will be very unfocused. It just can't focus. And that's okay. It's, it's, it's just being with that until it shifts. It's just fog. It does make a difference to keep going when there's sleepiness happening. You know, there's that saying that even when you think nothing is happening, something is happening. And that's really true. You know, it makes a big difference if you had gone to bed and slept for three hours and if you sat and walked. It often takes a lot of patience to be with the sleepiness and to go through it. It's like we want to be perfectly open all the time. We want to never be sleepy. We don't want any hindrances. We want all the factors of enlightenment to be in balance. Uh, and it's, unless we're fully enlightened, it's not like that. And it's, it takes that enormous patience to go through this journey. When we open, which is a lot of this journey, opening to what is happening, We open to the pleasant and unpleasant. And often, opening to too much unpleasantness or too much pain too quickly in our practice can be difficult because there's not enough balance of mind. There's not enough maturity in the mind to learn to not identify with the pain, whether it's physical or mental. This not... Identifying is when we don't take the experience personally. It is a deep freedom in this, and it's where the healing of this practice takes place. If we're fighting a lot with things, or we're trying to open too quickly, if we're forcing the process rather than being patient and gentle, often sleepiness will roll in as a kind of anesthesia, It's a kind of buffer so that it doesn't happen too quickly. It's like sleepiness can be a kind of holiday or escape from this amazing change that's happening moment by moment. There's this constant change. It can be very difficult to open to that the vulnerability of never knowing when it's going to be unpleasant and when that's going to change and when the pleasant will come and when that will change. 
And because of that, often sleepiness comes in just as a fog so that we don't have to be with that anymore. And it's important not to indulge in this sleepiness, but also not to take it personally. The Buddha, this is one of my favorite things the Buddha said, the Buddha called sleep the world's greatest pleasure. It's because we don't have to feel that change anymore. And you just imagine how you feel when you actually allow yourself to go to bed. It's usually quite pleasant. (laughs) When you're in the hall, you think sleepiness is this great enemy, but when you actually lay down to go to sleep, it's usually quite a welcome experience. It's interesting. We have a double standard. (laughs) Actually, I crowned myself the Queen of Sloth and Torpor um, (laughs) many years ago, and nobody has won the crown yet. (laughs) So, (laughs) it's one of the things I've learned to work with quite well, if anyone ever has any questions. Nobody has even come close, as a matter of fact. I'd gladly give the crown away. So if anyone is in the running, (laughs) let me know. If we're overcome by the sleepiness over and over, what happens is that no mindfulness is occurring. And we're not seeing clearly. And we're, we're getting overwhelmed by things, usually. And because we're getting overwhelmed, fear arises, which is the sixth army of Mara. I looked up fear in the dictionary tonight, and uh, fear is called a distressing emotion, aroused by impending pain or danger, whether real or imagined. It's the feeling or condition of being afraid. One of the other interesting definitions is that it's to have reverential awe. So, in relationship to the first definition of it being such a distressing emotion, If we look very closely at fear, one can see that we're afraid not of what's happening in the present moment most of the time. Usually there's some memory of some unpleasant feeling, an unpleasant experience or sensation that we didn't see clearly in that situation. And what happens is that we project that memory onto the future, and we get very afraid. Usually fear is of some future moment, and we're afraid of not being able to cope with it. We're afraid of not being able to open to it because we've been overwhelmed by it. We've gotten lost in it. It becomes terror when we've been overwhelmed and lost in it to an incredibly intense point. Just like the flower opening, the image of a flower opening, 
we want so much to open to life, to the truth of each moment, but we don't want any pain. That's how we are. And we want to be alive, but we don't want to hurt. Letting go has two aspects. It has the aspect of annihilation or extinction, which we fear. But it also has the aspect of flowing into the universe, the sense of dissolving into a kind of oneness, which we desire very much. Love is a kind of death or letting go. It's a flowing into the universe, which includes the pain and the hurt. What we're doing is we're learning to open to all experience, which includes the pain and the hurt. That's the flower opening to all experience. Yet the fear of this pain and the hurt is very strong in all of us. It's like the sense of I or ego and fear are just inseparable. They're almost indistinguishable. Often when we have the choice of letting go of fear, we feel like we're going to lose something. Every time we feel fear, or, or, or can be an experience where we can feel fear, the fear is usually presenting us with a choice. And there's two alternatives when fear arises. We can either shut down and separate and split off from the experience, or we can feel what is there, feel the fear itself or whatever it is that's unpleasant or that we're afraid of. So we have those two choices of splitting off from our experience, shutting down or opening. When we're lost in the fear at any given moment, we're identified and that identification itself makes us separate from the experience and usually there'll be more and more fear. This fear and shutting down causes us to feel more annihilated from the experience. We feel extinguished by the fear rather than a feeling of being flowing into the experience. One can see this in both the experiences of physical and emotional pain. What we're afraid of is feeling the unpleasant feeling and not knowing how long it will last. Oscar Wilde said that the basis for optimism is sheer terror. The basis for optimism is sheer terror. What once has been very difficult or annoying, one can become very grateful for because it usually is our most beloved teacher because the fear and opening to it will help us let go of this I, this inseparable union of fear and I. This last two-month course that I sat here at IMS this summer, 
um, things were going quite well for me for about five weeks. And then this very painful, intense cyst appeared right on the rectum. And as you can imagine, it made sitting quite painful. And it was the area that I had had to have an operation for, you know, many years ago that had been so difficult. And the fear that arose when that cyst appeared was so intense. It was like, first there was the fear of it getting worse. Then there was a fear of not being able to continue with the course. Then there was a fear, (laughs) the worst fear was of having to have another operation. And it became this enormous built-up terror in my mind whenever I would experience the sensation of pain when I was sitting. And finally, especially since I've been working with terror over the years, pretty soon there was that white flag. Oh, maybe I should try accepting this. So I got a mirror out and I took a very good look at this situation. And I just really looked at the area and I kept thinking, that isn't me. You know, that absolutely can't. It can't in any other part of my body, but not that. This cyst is not me. And it was such a relief. It was like this immediate shift from terror to this, ah, anatta. There's nobody there. There can't be anybody there. You know, really. It was such a good teacher. And I did what I needed to do to take care of it. I soaked it a lot, which was sort of humiliating. (laughs) And I made this routine part of my meditation rather than, you know, there was that annoyance, this incredible annoyance that it had interrupted my sacred routine. And I found that by opening to the situation over a period of days, actually it had brought me so much deeper. And I had gotten complacent in my practice and things were going so well and all of a sudden it just went to such a deep place because of that non-identification with the body as being I. And often body breakdowns can be these great teachers for this and it's not that we go looking for them but when they happen they're incredibly good teachers when we open to them. And actually, I was very grateful <laughs> for that experience. I was happy I had a mirror in my room. <laughs> Joy and peace and courage will come when we learn not to fight with what's happening or what appears, when we can allow the process of opening to occur at the pace, at the rhythm that we can do that in without getting overwhelmed. And I have another example of this that is an example of how to work with something a little more slowly in relationship to fear. When I go for walks in my history as a human being, I've had some past conditioning with with barking dogs that kind of charge out at you when you're walking by, that brings up, it triggers this enormous terror for me when that happens. And so whenever I used to go for a walk, 
if this kind of crazed <laughs> looking animal dog would come toward me, and I would just immediately, my legs would start shaking and I'd feel paralyzed. And I'd just usually head for the hills. You know, I'd turn around and walk away and kind of act like it wasn't a problem. <laughs> you know, that I really did want to go <laughs> three miles out of my way. Anyway, <laughs> no problem. Uh, and, and, but, you know, I could rationalize that a little bit. Usually I would hate myself for being such a wimp, you know. I just would just beat myself up for not being able to walk by the dog. And over years, I've learned to be more gentle with myself, with the terror. It's like being able to open to the fear itself. The fear itself is so unpleasant that that's what we're having difficulty with, is the unpleasantness of the fear. And when we understand that it's the level of unpleasantness that's so difficult to open to, we can start to um, strategize with the experience. So for, for sometimes when I have that experience over the years, I would back off and I wouldn't go by. And I learned that that was okay. You know, that it was just fear and that I didn't have the strength, not just to walk by, but it was the strength to open to the fear. And that's critical for working with fear. You know, that if you force yourself through these things, it makes it worse because we get overwhelmed and we drown, and there's more fear. There's less courage, there's less strength. But if we wait until the point where we have the strength to open to that unpleasantness, we'll feel strengthened by that experience. And then the next time that comes that we have a little more strength, we can go through it again. Or if we don't, we know to back off. And I think of this like uh, homeopathy. If you know, homeopathy is it's taking a very small dose of what we're most poisoned by, most affected by. And if you take a very small dose of fear and you feel like you can open to it, this will strengthen you. You'll learn, oh, I can learn to feel this feeling without drowning. But then maybe the next day you won't feel strong enough and you can't do it. That's okay. Because to do it would weaken one. One would get overwhelmed, probably, and one would feel less able to open to fear. And it's often not the experience itself, the content that matters. It's the understanding that it's being able to feel that feeling that it can be workable that's so important. The other day, Stephen and I went bike riding. (laughs) And I I know where every dog is, like within (laughs) 10 miles of IMS. I know where the nice dogs are, where the <laughs> crazy dogs are. We, were, you know, we went to this certain place that we had to go by the dog that I was afraid of. And so we were getting closer, and I was like, unpleasant. <laughs> it's only a very short period of time, unpleasant, unpleasant. We got close to the dog. And it was very interesting because Stephen saw a very different thing than I did. All I could see when the dog came was these big teeth and this big mouth and I could hear barking and all I could see was this mouth. (laughs) And Stephen said, 
notice that this, the tail is wagging. And I would never have noticed the tail was wagging. It was just, you know, all I could see was the head. And it was a real important moment for me because it was like the opening. Oh, <laughs> oh, a friendly dog. And it was, it was actually, it still barked and, you know, at the, at the heels, but the tail was wagging. And it was a whole, <laughs> it was a whole new experience because I could see that it really didn't mean, you know, what I imagined it meant. But I would never have been able to do that years ago. It just would have been too much. The terror would have been too much. So it actually works, this process of taking a dose at a time, another dose at a time. It's strengthening. And it's learning to assess oneself. I have found that the key to this is the moment when one has to back off or push. And what I've seen is that if I can acknowledge that I'm in pain, that I actually am hurting in the moment, then that can bring me to feel compassion toward myself or metta toward myself. But if I don't acknowledge the pain, I'll beat myself up. And this is really important for you in terms of your day-to-day experience here, that there's this moment where we need to back off. And usually our conditioning is to beat ourselves up for that, that we're bad somehow, that we're not strong enough, we're not good enough. And it's really possible to shift that and to see oneself very clearly and to really see, oh, ouch, I'm in pain. And one can feel this enormous flood of compassion for oneself. And this is incredibly strengthening. It's really important for us. It's the only way we can learn to do this. It's the only way, is through this compassion and metta for ourselves. And it switches everything. There's no longer that extra burden of self-hatred. It's just being able to see, do I have energy to open to this? Oh no? Okay. That's not personal. There's nothing you can do about that. But if you push it, (laughs) it's going to be a disaster. And if you say, oh, do I have energy to open to this? And you do... Great, take a dose. But if it's something that's difficult for you, underestimate yourself. Don't take too big a dose. Because there's always another chance. I can guarantee you that there's always another chance to open to something that's difficult. There's another aspect of fear that I wanted to mention tonight, but I'll just mention it briefly, which is on a very deep level, we have an enormous fear of the unknown. And that that also, again, that we're in this six-week period, we're halfway through the retreat, and we're really, most everyone here is going into new territory. And that's great, that's part of the process. And it can be scary. And I remember 
this time I sat, just this summer, there was a certain point where I would be taking these steps, just really fully present in my room. I would just take a step, you know, just another step. And then all of a sudden it would feel like the rug got pulled out and it was just like this terror of not knowing anything. You know, just this very deep, incredible feeling of being so in the present moment and yet feeling so vulnerable of just not knowing anything. We don't know anything. We pretend we do, but we really don't. (laughs) And we're so arrogant, generally. You know, we think (laughs) we know so much, but we don't. And I would watch that that was what was kept pulling me out of the present moment, was that I wanted to know. It's like I wanted to know that this was a zafir, that, you know, what time it was. Or, you know, it gets very subtle again, this, this terror. But it's what keeps the eye going. It might be that one obsesses about what time to bring your laundry down to the laundry room. You know, that's yogi mind. If you spend ten minutes, you know, planning when to bring your laundry down. You know, you can get caught in the most amazing stuff here. You know, when to go to lunch. Or, you know, it gets very... Um, <laughs> the maneuvering gets so funny. But it all happens because we're moving into a territory where we really can see that we're that vulnerable and that we really don't know. And that the eye is made up of all this knowing that keeps us functioning, but it has so many holes in it. It's so hollow. The other side to this is that when we open to this, there's this incredible energy and rapture that can come from just being with that awesomeness of never really knowing what's going to happen next. It's incredibly energizing and phenomenal that we don't. We really don't know what's going to happen next. When I first came to practice, for many years I just kept wanting everything to stop. And I just wanted stillness. I didn't want to be bothered with anything, just make everything stop. And then over time I began to see that the other side of that was that basically what was happening really was there was this incredible movement, that life was this constant movement, and that I kept wanting to pull out and pull out, and that Vipassana actually is this ability to be very still, but with the movement of life. It's this incredible balance of the mind being very still but able to flow with things. And it's such a gift to have this time to work with this, to keep trying to open to this, to keep trying to be in the present moment, because it's the truth. We can learn this deep delight in the truth of things because it's the truth. It might not be what we want, but it's the truth. And under, underneath all the difficulty, this can be what motivates us, not the fear of failure, 
but this delight in the truth. I'd like to end with a little quote. I think it's an Ojibwe Native American Indian quote. It's about learning to work with fear. Song of the Thunders. Sometimes I go about in pity for myself. And all the while, great winds are carrying me across the sky. Sometimes I go about in pity for myself and all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. It's learning to trust the moments just as they are. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.